Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm um I'm doing better now that I'm sipping on a cappuccino. Yes. I need one more coffee. <laughs> one more. I've gone from Just cutting one. back on coffee to needing more coffee. <laughs> How many have you had today? Just one. Okay. All right. Uh, but I over the last few days I've sacrificed sleep for conversation with good people. So mm, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not paying for it. Yep. That's uh, that's I I feel feel that after microconf we call it the microconf hangover. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yep, totally. I did a fast since I last talked to you. Yes, I saw I saw a few tweets about this. I haven't been on Twitter much, but obviously you told me about it, and then I saw you posting a bit about it. How did it go? Uh, It went really well, actually. So uh, this was a seventy-two hour fast, and I tweeted about it to get some people to do it with me. I had a friend, like a a real uh, an IRL friend who wanted to do it and then I invited a bunch of people uh, who were interested in joining to a discord that support group thing just works really well it's like surprisingly effective I think as far as I know everyone that started like finished it like successfully uh, which is to me is a pretty high success rate and I know if it, I had just been doing it on my on my own that would not have been true for me so the support thing worked well and the and the actual fast itself was easier than the last one so the last one i did was 48 hours and i remember feeling like that was really hard and in this one i did 72 hours and it felt much easier like it still wasn't fun but i didn't have nearly as much like intense craving for food and i think it's partly that i had done it before like i'd I'd done any fast before and so i sort of knew what to expect and also that i've been doing more intermittent fasting recently and apparently the more you fast the better your body gets at sort of adapting to that which makes sense it's like that for most things and so i think uh my body is just more able to handle like switching over to ketosis and like burning fat for fuel and so it seemed to be substantially easier this time which is cool are there any like ways to gauge whether you've been successful other than just like i successfully did not eat food (laughs) yeah given my goal i don't think so Okay. Because I'm in it for the autophagy and like hopefully prevention of cancer. Like it's, yeah, not really. I'll ask you in 50 years if you got cancer and if the answer is no, then I'll be like, your fasting worked. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. That okay. is 100% right. proof. Okay. All right. Yep. Although it's funny, like the, the last day I went on like the R food subreddit and sort of by like top all time. And I was just looking at like the most beautiful pictures of food imaginable. <laughs> That's hilarious. Pretty, it's pretty crazy. I was it's like you're in a desert fantasizing in a desert. You start seeing mirages of food. <laughs> yes. Yep. Oh, man. Also, this thing I love about fasting is my sense of smell becomes incredible. Like I, I normally have like a, a below average sense of smell. Uh, and when I'm fasting, I, I can smell everything. It's incredible. <laughs> like wow. I, Spencer walked into the room one morning and I was like, I smell onions. And he was like, I cooked onions last night. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm not the person that can usually smell that kind of thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'd be curious yeah. about the physiology behind that. I mean, I'm sure it has to do with like heightened senses. The more you, the more like food acquisition becomes important to your, right. to your body. Right. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. But it's interesting that that, that's just, just possible. Like I, that, that ability is just there. It's just not usually on for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like but whatever I, your body chooses to focus on. I mean, it, it has its own set of priorities, right? And you have no control over that. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yep. It was fun, like, just to, like, 
open a container of food and smell it and just be like, whoa, that's so intense. <laughs> it's kind of torturing myself, but it was fun. Yeah. You were doing that while you were fasting? You were like mm-hmm. sniffing yeah. food? Oh, man. Yep. It's a dangerous Just a little game. bit. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to crack. Like, I, it was, there was no danger of that. I was just too committed. Um, but, yeah. And then I finally broke my fast. Where I, One of the pictures I found on the food subreddit just, like, spoke to my soul. And it was this glorious photo of a uh, an avocado BLT. And I was like, yeah, there it is that is what I'm going to eat. And so I went out and I went to like this super high-end grocery store that we have near me. It's like a grocery boutique where everything is twice as expensive as you expect and got like super fancy bacon and freshly made bread and like organic mayonnaise and just like had like <laughs> the most beautiful BLT and it was glorious. Nice. And then I made another one. <laughs> And, another, and the second one was not another. as good, and I regretted it. <laughs> Should have done one. Did you eat it in rapid succession? Like, Yes. Yeah. I was like, I should pace myself. And so I managed to wait about like 35 or 40 minutes, and then I made a second <laughs> one. The second one, of course, was not quite as glorious tasting-wise. And then by, after, by the time I finished it, I was like, okay, now I feel kind of terrible. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, knew, I knew it as I was doing it. I was like, this is not, I shouldn't do this, but I did it anyway. I also wanted to, to do a shout out to our buddy Josh Wood, who sent us an email after our podcast where we talked about trying to get off Twitter a little bit. And he has, has done this successfully. So he had some advice. And one of his pieces of, of advice I thought wouldn't work, but totally did work. So he told me that there is a way to fully block Twitter uh, in the settings using like basically parental controls. And like do like a content restriction on twitter.com, which blocks the web, like the, the Safari version of the website, blocks any apps that use it, whatever. And he says he just, he set a passcode and then doesn't memorize it, but he writes it in his like one password vault on his Mac and then can't remember what it is. And I was like, that's not going to work for me. Like, I know I'm going to remember it. And so I did this. And then like within an hour, I was like, actually, I don't think I do remember it. <laughs> I know it starts <laughs> with a six and I'm pretty sure there's a five and a four there. But, and so I basically did manage to successfully lock myself out of Twitter. And technically, I could go get the password and like put it in. So like I'm still not fully, fully locked. But for whatever reason, this has been enough where I'm like, okay, fine. Twitter is gone from my phone for the moment. It is surprising how strong that addiction is. I went to, I'll talk about this in a minute, but I went to Big Snow Tiny Conf this last week. And I I set this up on, I think, Sunday. So I realized like on like wednesday i was like i think this is the longest i've gone without seeing twitter because i also didn't bring my laptop and i was just like shocked at how many times a day i like had to like go look at twitter impulse like really strong it was kind of disturbing honestly yeah it's engineered that way i mean it's it's like surprising on the one hand and not on the other hand because you think about like there's a whole team of people that they're their KPI <laughs> is like figuring out how to optimize luring people back into the app. So it should become as no surprise, you know? Yeah. And if you had told me that, I would have agreed with you kind of at a like a... Like a logical level or whatever. Yes. Like, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I would sort of been like, yeah, totally. I, I, that That is true. But going through it and feeling that like just that same ping over and over to go look at Twitter again and again throughout the week was like wow and then to be like have this low-grade annoyance where i can't get it and it's like oh man it's blocked still i'm like ah and now i'm like kind of mad it's like (laughs) wow this is way more 
habitual than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of uh, disturbing, honestly. So, what do you think you're? What do you think you're gonna do about it? The, I don't know. So, keeping it blocked on the phone for now, like that, definitely lowers my usage a lot. The phone is kind of the like, oh, I'm bored for 12 seconds. Let me pull up Twitter. So that has is helping that a, a bunch, of course. But it's starting to make me more concerned overall. Like, I'm wondering if like I need to block this on more places and like have like maybe like a window where this is allowed or something like that. It was, yeah, because it's more insidious than I thought it was. I thought I had like a minor Twitter addiction. It turns out I have a major Twitter addiction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So coming coming back from Big Snow, uh, I mean, you had it blocked on your phone there and you didn't have your laptop. What is your current allowed, self-allowed level of usage? Yeah, I mean, desktop only. And when I came back... It's like, okay, yeah, I have a couple DMs and a bunch of mentions, but like nothing was really missed. It was totally fine. One thing I try to do when I start my day is block all my like time wasting websites uh, using my hosts file. Uh, so I have like a little shell alias that's like called unslack, which just like copies over a host file, which has those things blocked out. And so I try to run that in the morning uh, and then often end up uncommenting some stuff by the, or you know, unblocking some things by the evening. So I don't have I don't have a plan for this yet, but my awareness is up a lot more now, which I think is useful in mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you have you considered doing like completely disallow yourself from Twitter on in all ways for like a block of time, like a month? Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, that might be the right thing to do. Yeah, like have someone reset my password, kind of thing. Because it would, yeah, that would that would do it. Because it's no fun to like look at it without an account i wouldn't do that that might be good so (laughs) one thing that comes to mind is like well how much i think it's like kind of useful for the business like in certain ways but not that useful and like i I, one of the one of my things on my to-do list is to set up better tracking of like where our like signups are coming from because certainly some of them are coming from twitter but are they coming from my tweets like the things that i'm actually doing like i don't know who knows there's probably some marketing benefit there but i'm i'm not convinced it's super huge like like I'd, I'd be giving up that much versus the ability to actually focus for longer than a few minutes on something is pretty probably more important. It's hard to say too that like you may dig into the data and find like I know for me the number two referrer I think is Twitter behind just like Google, <laughs> which is it's a black box unless you dig into the. I've done a little webmaster tool stuff, but it's still hard to figure out what exactly is happening there. But like that also is partially a function of like well if you've been if you've been linking to it and and being active there, like that's that's something natural to expect. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like it's necessarily vital to your business or or not replaceable with something else that's you know a more effective means for for acquiring traffic. Yeah, and if I had to guess, it's mostly probably not my tweets. It's probably other people. Like I know people talk like we encourage people to tweet about us quite a bit, and so I, I bet that's driving a fair amount of traffic. Twitter is definitely a big refer for us. I don't think me going on there and like. Yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. So speaking of silly things, perfect segue. We launched uh, our stand giveaway. Yeah. Yeah, I've been curious to hear how uh, how that's been received. Yeah, so if, if folks haven't seen this, uh, we are giving away an Apple Pro XDR stand, which started off as a joke, 
where we were like like we were just like joking about it it'd be funny because like you know we're a bootstrap startup and like we can't give away the whole monitor but we we could afford that thousand dollar stand so and eventually it was like you know what let's actually do this i think this actually would work and so uh, we launched this we, we hired a designer and paid real money to have someone design a giveaway page for a apple pro display xdr stand and uh, are collecting emails i launched it and within like a couple within 20 minutes i was like i think this is going to work people thought it was funny they got the joke they shared it around like it was it was interesting enough that, that people were willing to like kind of share it with other people and be like look at this this is funny seems pretty clear we're building like positive brand impression i guess like like people appreciated that we're you know have a sense of humor and not taking this too seriously and we have gotten so far 902 email addresses submitted to that uh, i think it's been about 10 days or so that's pretty great already. But one thing someone pointed out, like the, the first question someone asked me at Big Snow was like, have you tried running any paid traffic to that page? And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Because like you're, you're giving away a thing. You're not asking for a lot. So you can get like pretty cheap email addresses probably. So that's something I'm, I'm going to try, at least like promoting the tweet and see what happens there. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about promoting on Twitter. Are you... Uh, what's your stance on like running Facebook ads or Google ads? Are you open to it? Are you? I guess so. I don't know that I have it? a stance. It's, yeah, it, it actually did kind of come up though because people were like, "Well, do you have the tracking pixel on that like there so you can like retarget people that went to that page?" And I was like, "No," and they're like, "That's dumb." And it's like, yeah, like apparently it's just like retargeting campaigns are like they're not even like paid acquisition. It's just like kind of like just free money because they just work really well but at the same time i'm like but also like i block those pixels on every website with a chrome extension because i don't want people knowing where i've been and so for me to add them on a web property that we control it just feels a little bit crappy and so (laughs) it's like well how much money are we missing like how much revenue (laughs) could we gain from it and how much do i value that versus you know having a taking a stand on something and yeah this is that that central conundrum because it's like all the best practices will tell you like oh you need all this tracking you need all this automation like this is just a no-brainer this is how we do it but it's you know it's becoming clear like installing those pixels is just helping helping the behemoths who like to broker your data (laughs) do that more effectively totally so yeah and then yeah. paying them for you know to get to get access to more people it's like now yep. like we're paying a tax kind of yep uh, or like helping them stay entrenched so i feel i feel conflicted around that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like I, I almost want to run a test and be like all right how much money could we make with this it's like, <laughs> okay it's not very much all right let's not do it but like what if it's what if it's kind of a lot <laughs> right right it's like oh no yeah does, right. and does it even matter i mean that's a that's exactly. Very, yeah. That's a very Paul Jarvisy type of question to ask. Like, <laughs> you know, you know. And then, like, part of me says, like, well, maybe we can make a similar amount of money, or like, get, by like taking the opposite stance, and like have a page which is like, we don't track you because we think that's garbage, and so like, we're not gonna. There's no pixels on this page. That's why it loads so fast. You know, we we won't do that to you, kind of thing. And like, be principled, and maybe even that that principle helps helps the business. I mean, I think if you're deliberately not going to install trackers, I think you ought to be very public about your stance and why that is, you know, I mean, it can only, it can only help you. I mean, so. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's just, I agree. It should be definitely, we should make a big deal of it if we're going to do it. Similarly, 
very similarly, there's this page that someone linked me to called uh, SSO.tax, which is a list of companies that charge you more money for single sign-on support. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and what the difference is, like what, how much more it costs. Yeah. And the goal is basically to shame these companies into not doing this because SSO is an important security feature and uh, should not cost a lot is this person's perspective like the, it's not a f- flawless argument or anything but there's part of the spirit of that where i'm like you're kind of right like it like you can get away with doing it and everyone does it or a lot of people do it but at the same time like that is kind of true where it's like sso leads to better security practices it lets you enforce you know two-factor auth for your users things like that uh, so it is kind of good for the world to support it and then making it more expensive is something you can do, but maybe you shouldn't. The way I see it right now, a lot of people seem to be using that as a as a way of determining if someone is in a certain tier of like enterpriseiness, right? It's like, yep, that's what we do. If you want this thing, you are very likely in this camp where you can afford to pay more for the software. So I feel like, I mean, maybe it's just a matter of of hunting for a different tripwire to put someone into that category that's not SSO. Right, right. yeah. Yep. That's true. I, the problem is nothing comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the <laughs> yeah. best one. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's basically the only thing in our enterprise tier feature-wise. And it's like that and like also, you know, custom terms of service or like signing your NDA or whatever, whatever you need. Mm-hmm. What about just so, raw seat count? Is that, does that put someone into your enterprise tier if they have a no. crap load of seats? No? No, that's fine. So I don't immediately plan to change this. I think it, I think we'll probably keep it. But like one thing that one counter argument, the first thing is just like it's good for security. We could potentially come out and take the other stance and say we don't charge more for SSO, and anyone that does is a jerk and you know, make it a, <laughs> yeah. make a big splash kind of thing. Yeah, uh, we're principled. One other sort of mitigating factor I think is that companies that want single sign-on probably have a lot of users. And so they're probably going to end up paying more anyway because we charge per seat. So it's like, yeah, our per user cost will be the, wouldn't go up, but they're probably going to be our bigger customers anyway. And having support for that maybe even helps it spread around. So I don't know. We might be able to take a different stand on this and have it not be a negative impact for us. Have a do a, do a little experiment. Have a tax holiday, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> get oh, your SSO tax free for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's really great. I like that a lot. Repatriate some enterprise customers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've actually thought about something like that for Tuple, like like a temporarily free period of time. Uh, like like Tuple's free for the next month to anyone, any new person, and just like let let the world sign up for it and see, and make a big deal of it. Could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, working that virality angle. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you're already doing it with the stand. So <laughs> I know it's, it's true. Oh man, I can't wait to do a drawing for a stand and like <laughs> mail this to somebody. I'm hoping like we can get like a whole like unboxing video, <laughs> yeah. a photo of them with a the stand. Yep, yep. It's gonna be fun. Mm-hmm. It's also it's it's just launching that page was like I just loved. Uh, that we could do that it was like to me that was like a great expression of like we own the company and we can do silly things like this uh, and like have some creativity and and do something a little atypical and and hey it might even work that was fun 
So uh, what's up with you? Uh, yeah. So I think last time we talked, I was kind of deep in the middle of building out this new angle of providing static kit functionality. Now I can't even remember how much I said <laughs> on the last episode. So I'll just... I think you hadn't even renamed the feature. Okay. All right. So... So static it started out as a kind of a form provider uh, very much along the lines of of a lot of form providers for static sites and the paradigm is like you you take a form submission from a front end and you store it in a table and then you do some actions on it like maybe you send a notification email or you you know send it to an email marketing provider or something like that as i've been talking about on here for like a couple of months now my my goal is to offer tooling around collecting payments payments from kind of the Jamstack type of website. And so my realization was trying to force payments into this form submission model came with a lot of challenges and particularly architecting like new like Stripe payment intents for the strong customer authentication stuff. And it just felt like the abstraction was wrong. So I basically came up with an idea to kind of offer the same type of functionality but packaged up in a little bit different way and that way is as as functions instead of forms so i've kind of soft launched this stuff i I pushed it live this week which has felt felt really good to get this long long running three week long branch of code all pushed into production and so basically how it works now is is you still use your static kit config file but instead of forms saying like these are the fields and these are this is a list of actions now it's just you declare what are the what are the individual actions that you may want to take so like if you if you want to send yourself a notification email when someone submits a form you just configure a send notification function in your config file you deploy that to static kit and you get back this npm package that has a JavaScript function of the same name that you can call and it has TypeScript types so you can get type safety if you're using that. And when you call it, it does the thing on the server for you. So it's basically offering backend functionality packaged up as just plain JavaScript functions. It's pretty cool, I feel like, because these are just, these are individual kind of composable units of computation you can do, but with things that are not not accessible purely in front end JavaScript. Um, and so I kind of have have like a, a little collection of these. I have a you know one for adding to MailChimp, one for sending a notification email. And then this week I've been I've been building the ones that allow you to create a customer in Stripe, create a charge, create a subscription. And so I have some prototypes in my hands right now and it's it's all working. Like it's all working as planned. So it's I'm pretty excited to show this to the world, but also like uh, just trying to figure out the best way to do this like i want to kind of i want to make this sort of a big deal in the in the life cycle of static kit you know it's kind of a a reinvention of the model and i'm trying to figure out like how many pieces do i need to have put together like how many function types is enough to be compelling for people to to understand like oh i can actually accomplish a lot with this and how much sample code is the right amount for people to be able to just start playing with it and not you know hit one page of documentation and be like eh, too difficult i'm not going to spend time on this right now so working through all that kind of stuff but feeling pretty good about where the product stands relative to my vision that i had for it you know three weeks ago when i kind of thought about this stuff so nice um so with the, the payment stuff why are the static kick functions better than using like the stripe js library 
directly. So it still works in tandem with the Stripe.js library, but you can't like if you if you look through even just like the simple guide on like creating a charge in in Stripe, there's always a step that requires a server. Actually, I take that back. If you use Stripe checkout, then there is a narrow range of things you can do that redirects to their checkout page. And so if you want to do anything outside of kind of a a very narrow band of functionality, like if you want to kick off a subscription and have an initial charge alongside that or any number of like kind of custom workflow things, you're you're kind of stuck. You have to implement your own server side functionality for that. So gotcha. So you're adding support for that on like the static back end. I would call your functions that would then do that and I don't have to worry about the server. Yep. And you can host all these things using stripe elements on your own site too so you don't like if you're using the the kind of prepackaged stripe stuff then you always have to redirect to their hosted checkout page to do stuff and so this allows you to stay on your stay within your site experience okay yeah yeah that makes sense yep yep interesting huh do you have any plans to try to find like some pilot people for this or like people using it or using it yourself or what are your thoughts on that yeah so i think one of my to-dos as I'm kind of working up like what what's the launch strategy for this look like is to pour through my list of current users and see who's who's actively using the product today and kind of get a sense for like what are they using this for? I mean, I kind of do this casually, but I haven't really taken a hard look at like how many total people are really actively using the product and would be a good candidate for for testing this thing out. So, planning to do like a I think like an email launch to those people, the people who are in the product and are using it already today, and then see what that yields and adjust from there. Um, hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Hmm. So you you must be psyched to have shipped this thing. Yeah, yeah, it feels good. It's like the same little pattern that always happens. Like you get a little high from shipping it, and then there's a little bit of a crash that comes afterward, where you're like. It's kind of the letdown of like, okay, this thing that long running branches always do this to me. Like you, it's, you just get this increasing itch to get it, to get it shipped. And this one, I was, I was not able to break up into as small a chunks as I wanted to, because at the same time I was kind of moving, I was move, moved a lot of the front end UI of the app into my Next.js application where the marketing side is hosted in the documentation, because what I want ultimately is like the documentation experience to be super personalized to the context of your logged in user. And I'm there now. So like when you log into static and you go to the doc site, every example that has a, your site ID in it or a, or a token, like a deploy key is automatically embedded and it's pulling whatever your current site is. So you have a, you know, little site drop down in the top, right. And whatever is set up there, all of the documentation below has the right keys for that. So you can, you can literally run all the code samples and they all work in the context of your logged in site. And I felt like that was pretty important for developer experience to get that, to get that really smooth. So, yeah. um, Will this, the payment stuff be behind like the paid version of the product? Yes. Yep. So I'm still keeping like the delineation between sandbox and production as kind of the way the plans are structured. And so in sandbox mode, you can only use Stripe test credentials for these functions. And so as soon as you want to upload your live credentials, you have to be on a paid plan. So hmm. that'll be that's, that's that'll nice be that you can distinguish that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty cool. looking for the word test in the token. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. 
that's handy to be able to segment that way. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I'll be interested to hear how, how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I'm optimistic, but we'll see. Have I'm, you adopted it on your yourself? Like the payment stuff is like, are you now running through that? A little bit. Like I haven't, I haven't rolled it for my own payment forms yet, but um, planning to do that. But I definitely have like small simulation projects and stuff where I'm where I'm working all these flows, and uh, it's, it's pretty magical. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, anything else going on? Um. No, we're at thirty minutes, so we could probably we could probably wrap it. We don't want to overwhelm the people. We do not. No. No. All right. Uh, show notes. <laughs> show notes can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye.